Happy New Year and welcome to the first Annals of Internal Medicine podcast of 2020. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of what's new in the journal since our last podcast. I hope that many of you are enjoying time with family and friends over the holidays and miss the new material published online first on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, so I'll begin with that material. Globally, more than 200 million adults have major non-cardiac surgery annually, and more than 10% suffer cardiac complications within the first 30 days following surgery, resulting in death, disability, prolonged hospitalization, or increased healthcare expenditures. Several guidelines recommend using the revised cardiac risk index to predict perioperative cardiac risk. Although the revised cardiac risk index is easy to use, its accuracy in predicting major perioperative cardiovascular complications is limited. Preliminary evidence suggests that NT-pro-BNP measurement may improve perioperative cardiovascular risk prediction. In the first article published online on December 24th, researchers from McMaster University report a study that sought to determine whether preoperative NT-pro-BNP had additional predictive value beyond the revised cardiac risk index for predicting vascular death and myocardial injury within 30 days after non-cardiac surgery. The study included 10,402 patients at 16 hospitals in nine countries, and all patients had NT-pro-BNP levels measured before surgery and troponin-T levels measured daily for up to three days after surgery. The researchers found that preoperative NT-pro-BNP concentrations were independently associated with the occurrence of vascular death or myocardial injury at 30 days after surgery. Adding preoperative NT-pro-BNP thresholds to the risk index substantially improved identification of patients at high risk for postoperative complications. The next December 24th article reports a nationwide survey of 279 internal medicine residency program directors that found that the vast majority of these program directors did not correctly interpret the American Board of Internal Medicine's leave policies for resident physicians. While 51% of those surveyed said they understood ABIM's leave of absence and vacation policy, most failed to correctly answer specific questions about the rules. These misunderstandings could lead to unnecessary extensions in residents' training programs. The last December 24th article is a commentary that argues that there is a need to revise the Uniform Determination of Death Act to better correspond to contemporary knowledge about brain death and the probability of neurologic recovery following serious brain injury. An important topic, but admittedly not one that makes for a happy conversation around holiday dinner tables. Osteoarthritis of the knee is a painful, disabling condition that affects more than 14 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. The pain of knee osteoarthritis arises from a series of pathological processes involving articular cartilage, subchondral bone, synovium, meniscus, and other joint structures, ultimately leading to joint failure and pain-related functional limitations. In the first December 31st article that I'll highlight, researchers sought to test the hypothesis that cathepsin K inhibitor could alleviate osteoarthritis symptoms by reducing degeneration of bone and cartilage. In a multi-center study led by the University of Leeds, researchers randomly assigned 244 patients with primary knee osteoarthritis to receive either 100 or 200 milligrams daily of MIV-711, a cathepsin K inhibitor, 
or match placebo for 26 weeks to evaluate the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of this agent. The primary endpoint of the study was change in pain score, but changes in disease progression were also assessed with imaging using MRI. The researchers found that compared with placebo, MIV-711 was associated with less bone remodeling, less cartilage volume loss, and lower levels of bone resorption and collagen loss. However, this study revealed no beneficial effects on knee pain. According to the authors, further evaluation is needed to confirm the structural benefits of MIV-711 and to determine whether these translate to more tangible benefits on disease symptoms. The authors of an accompanying editorial say that while the work is promising, more research is needed to determine if the structural changes seen with MIV-711 translate into improvements in pain and function over longer periods of time than observed in this 26-month trial. The editorialists point out the study findings do not contradict that there is a foundational link between modification of structure and improvement in osteoarthritis pain, but rather clarify that changes in structure do not beget immediate changes in symptoms. Patients and their clinicians are often confused about the proper way to dispose of unused prescription drugs. Retail pharmacists are in an ideal position to provide drug disposal information, but little is known regarding the accuracy of the information they provide. In the next article, researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, identified licensed pharmacies located in urban and rural settings in California, a state that accounts for 10% of all U.S. pharmacies. They wrote a script that guided four male and two female secret shoppers to call and ask how to dispose of leftover antibiotics and a liquid opioid-based painkiller. From late February to late April 2018, the participants called 898 pharmacies and found that fewer than half provided correct disposal details, a percentage that dropped sharply if the callers made their call on a weekend. Asked specifically about drug take-back programs, just 11% said their pharmacy had one that could be used to dispose of antibiotics or opioids. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that pharmacy employees lack knowledge about proper medication disposal. Strengthening education of patients and those advising patients, as well as expanding disposal programs, could help to improve disposal practices. On December 31st, we also published a commentary by individuals at New York University and Cornell University Medical Schools, two institutions that are initiating tuition-free options for medical school. The authors explore the benefits and adverse consequences of different strategies for making medical education more affordable. Their discussion is thought-provoking, and I highly recommend going to annals.org to see what they have to say. And we began the new year with a clinical guideline on the prescription of testosterone for men with age-related low testosterone from the American College of Physicians. The guideline and the evidence review on which the recommendations are based were published online first on January 7th. The ACP recommends using testosterone only to treat sexual dysfunction, not for other reasons for which evidence of benefit is lacking. ACP suggests that physicians consider intramuscular rather than transdermal formulations when initiating testosterone treatment to improve sexual function because the costs are considerably lower for the intramuscular formulation and clinical effectiveness and harms are similar. In 2016, the annual cost per beneficiary for testosterone replacement therapy was $2,135 for transdermal 
and $156 for the intramuscular formulation, according to paid pharmaceutical claims provided in the 2016 Medicare Part D claims data. Most men are able to inject the intramuscular formulation at home and do not require a separate clinic or office visit for administration. The ACP advises physicians to discuss whether to initiate testosterone treatment in men with age-related low testosterone with sexual dysfunction who want to improve sexual and erectile function. Physicians should reevaluate symptoms within 12 months and periodically thereafter and discontinue testosterone if sexual function does not improve. Testosterone treatment should not be initiated to improve energy, vitality, physical function, or cognition because the evidence indicates testosterone treatment is not effective for these reasons. ACP's guideline is also endorsed by the American Academy of Family Physicians. Go to annals.org to read the guideline, earn CME and MOC credit, and to access the summary of the guideline for patients. The high cost of healthcare in the U.S. is a topic of much public debate and discussion. The next article informs this discussion and suggests that healthcare bureaucracy cost Americans $812 billion in 2017 and represented more than one-third of total expenditures for doctor visits, hospitals, long-term care, and health insurance. The researchers estimate that cutting U.S. administrative costs to Canadian levels could have saved more than $600 billion in 2017. Researchers at City University of New York and Hunter College, Harvard Medical School, and the University of Ottawa analyzed thousands of accounting reports that hospitals and other healthcare providers filed with regulators, as well as census data on employment and wages in the healthcare sector, to quantify 2017 spending for administration by insurers and providers. They found that health administration costs were more than fourfold higher per capita in the U.S. than in Canada. $2,479 versus $551 per person. Americans spent $844 per person on insurer's overhead, while Canadians spent only $146. Additionally, doctors, hospitals, and other healthcare providers in the U.S. spent far more on administration due to the complexity entailed in billing multiple payers and dealing with the bureaucratic hurdles that insurers impose. As a result, hospital administration cost Americans $933 per capita versus $196 in Canada, where hospitals are paid lump sum budgets by the single payer, much as fire departments are funded in the U.S. Physicians' billing costs were also much higher in the U.S., $465 per capita versus $87 per capita in Canada. The authors caution that their estimates probably underestimate administrative costs and particularly the growth since 1999. The same authors conducted a study in 1999 that included administrative spending for some items, such as dental care, for which no 2017 data were available. They suggest that Medicare for All could save more than $600 billion each year on bureaucracy, and that money could be repurposed to cover America's $30 million uninsured and eliminate copayments and deductibles for everyone. Next is a brief report that found that only 10% of eligible primary care providers are certified to prescribe buprenorphine, a number that falls far short of what is needed to address the current opioid epidemic in the United States. Expanded access to medication treatment of opioid use disorder is a critical component of the national response to the opioid crisis. From 2007 to 2017, there was roughly a fourfold increase in providers certified to provide buprenorphine, 
However, this growth has varied by community characteristics. Researchers from RAND Corporation studied substance abuse and mental health service administration and the Drug Enforcement Administration data to examine county-level growth in the number of buprenorphine waiver prescribers and variation by county characteristics, including rurality, income, and rate of opioid-related overdose deaths in the past year. They found that the number of buprenorphine waiver clinicians increased substantially between 2007 and 2017, and that growth was much faster in counties with higher rates of opioid-related overdose deaths in the preceding year. However, despite evidence that opioid crisis has disproportionately affected rural counties that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, prescriber growth was markedly slower in these small, non-metropolitan counties than in urban counties, and was also slower in communities with lower levels of education, even after adjusting for the severity of the opioid crisis. According to the authors, new models to increase access to care, broader scope of practice laws, and more aggressive training and financial incentives are needed to address a shortage of certified providers who are offering opioid addiction services. Currently, clinical judgment and cardiac stress imaging are used for risk stratification in patients with symptomatic coronary artery disease and suspected inducible myocardial ischemia. The optimal non-invasive method for surveillance is unknown, but troponin, a quantitative marker of cardiomyocyte injury, has recently been evaluated as a clinical tool in settings other than the diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction. In the last January 7th online first article, researchers from Switzerland studied 1,896 consecutive patients with symptoms of coronary artery disease to see whether very low concentrations of troponin could help to exclude inducible myocardial ischemia. They used three different assays to measure HS cardiac troponin in blood samples that had been taken before stress testing and processed by personnel blinded to clinical data. The researchers found that the diagnostic accuracy of troponin to identify inducible myocardial ischemia was low and no cutoff level achieved the predefined performance characteristics for the exclusion of inducible myocardial ischemia. Most of the articles in the January 7th print issue were initially published online first and highlighted in previous podcasts. New material in the issue includes two on being a doctor essays and an in-the-clinic review on celiac disease. January 7th also brings new Annals Graphic Medicine articles and the latest Annals on Call podcast. This episode of Annals on Call features a discussion of new recommendations for the management of patients with non-variceal upper gastrointestinal bleeding. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you go to annals.org to delve deeper into some of the new material I've mentioned. There are plenty of opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. My Annals colleagues and I wish everyone who is listening health and happiness in 2020. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.